Beautiful. That's what comes to mind when we think about our human design and we're progressively exposed to the perfection of God's original design. Our lives begin to reflect that beauty. Your life is His design and His design is beautiful. Thank you for engaging with us as we are about to be further exposed to the beauty of His design as we look into the world to see Jesus. Wow, please write this down. Wow is the power of a realization that hits your spirit. Wow is the power of a realization that hits your spirit. So there are going to be many points of wow. There are going to be wow moments today, literally. You're going to have that. And if you don't have those wow moments I want you to come and take your data money back, all right? If your heart is open and you're attentive tonight, the, a lot of things that will hit your spirit, I can assure you about that, that would make you go wow, all right? Wow is the power of a realization that hits your spirit, all right? Please write this down as the continuous definition of wow. If your righteousness or your understanding of righteousness does not move your mouth to speak with authority, then it has not yet rested in your spirit. When you see righteousness, all right, and it rests upon your spirit and you understand it, you're going to begin, you're going to be moved to begin to use it. Let me say that again. If your righteousness does not move your mouth to speak with authority, it has not yet rested in your spirit. When you see righteousness, you are moved to begin to use it. When you see righteousness, when you understand what righteousness is, you're going to be moved to use what you have understood. And the first point of usage would be, wow, then you go ahead and use your authority. And I'm telling you, um, that happened many times today as I studied for myself, really. I just studied um, there are a lot of things that I studied that I'm not going to share today, but there are quite a lot of things that I studied that I'm also going to share. So last week, I defined righteousness to be God's ruling system as against a moral code. It is God's ruling, it is God's system for ruling and reigning. And I also explained that there are many people who have a morality to their understanding of righteousness who are not ruling or reigning jack. They are actually in a lot of trouble. They are actually experiencing a lot of pain. All right? So righteousness is beyond the morality code. It is God's system for ruling and reigning. And if you, if you really paid attention to the teaching on Sunday... And you went one more day at the mercy of life and at the mercy of, of circumstances and at the mercy 
of situations and at the mercy of, you know, you know, things just like, you know, some people say, whatever will be, will be. If you are that person who listened to the message on Sunday and you just went about your life as regularly as possible, as normally as possible, and you didn't think to use what um, you have, you have, um, you heard, then um, I don't know what to say to you. All right, I honestly don't know what to say to you because at some point your understanding of righteousness must move you into taking action, and that action is that you must begin to use the authority that you have. So righteousness is God's system for ruling and reigning. So whenever a person says, I am righteous, the next thing that should come out of your mouth is a command. It's because I am righteous, I cannot, I cannot accept this, that kind of thing, you know. So we're going right into the teaching for tonight, and I'm going to give you another definition of righteousness. Righteousness, please write this down. Maybe every, every service I'll give you a definition of righteousness, all right, beyond what you already know that righteousness is. Give you a definition of righteousness. Righteousness is your new relationship with God as a son with all its privileges. I want to say that again. Righteousness is your understanding of your new relationship with God as a son with all its privileges. I want to say that again. Righteousness is your understanding of your new relationship with God as a son with all of its privileges. Alright? So, this is what righteousness is. It is understanding your new relationship as a son with all its benefits. Alright? Understanding your new relationship as a son with all its benefits and privileges. Alright? That is what righteousness is. So today, I'm going to talk about what your expectations should be as the righteousness of God. And then I'm going to delve into sin consciousness. Then I'm going to delve into God's cure for sin consciousness. Then I'm going to delve into what I call 2 Corinthians 5.21, how Jesus was made sin. I'm going to delve into that. Please, don't assume you know anything that we're going to say today, because you don't. You're going to be hearing certain things for the first time, I can assure you. Okay? So I'm going to delve into that, and um, I'm going to close on that note. Alright? So we have a packed evening today, and I hope that I can unveil all of these things within the shortest possible period. Alright. So... Let's begin tonight. Ephesians chapter number 5 and verse 27. I'm going to look at three scriptures. You want to probably just take them down. And then I'm going to start my introduction and then we'll go on. Ephesians 5 and verse 27. Colossians 1, 21 to 22. If you are in service two, two Wednesdays, that's last week Wednesday. I use this scripture, Colossians 1, 21 and 22. 
and then Ephesians 1 and verse 3. I'm going to start with these three scriptures, then we will continue from there. Please write this down. People should be sure about how God sees them. Number one, people should be sure about how God sees them. I mean, there is the need for you to be assured about the way God sees you. There is the need for you to be assured about the way God sees you. And that's why this conversation is important. There, there is the need also, write this down, people should be sure about how God sees them. People should be sure about God's disposition towards them. All right? And people should not live fearful or worried about judgment and condemnation. I want to say that again. People should be sure about how God sees them. You need to be sure about how God sees you. You have to be sure. This uncertainty that, that greets a lot of people's hearts about how God sees them is not a function of righteousness. When you are righteous and when you know it and when you understand what righteousness is, at no point should you be unsure about how God sees you. That's the first thing. Number two, people should be sure about God's disposition towards them. The one is how God sees you. The second is God's disposition. And I wish that you have a pen and a paper. You have something that you're taking or you have your notes with you. I mean, we are, we are students of scripture. You have your pen, your paper, you have a notepad. You, don't just, this is not radio, okay? You're, you're being taught God's word. Alright, so people should be sure how God sees them. And people should be sure God's disposition towards them. Alright, and people should not live fearful about God's judgment or condemnation. Very important that we understand this. And then the, the fourth thing that I want to read to you is that a lot of the things that we have been made as a result of redemption has happened now. They are happening now or they have happened already. Okay? Now let's go to scripture and let's begin to teach as you will see where we are headed tonight. In the book of Ephesians chapter number 5 and verse 27. Look at what it says. It says, to present her to himself, speaking about the church, speaking about you, it says to present you to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Ephesians 5.27, I'm reading from the NIV, all right? Let's read from another translation, the, the, the King James Bible. It says that he might present the bride, the church, to himself as a glorious church, not having spots or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So first, we see that God in Christ Jesus is presenting us to himself as not having any spots, 
not having any wrinkle or not having any blemish, um, that we are presented to him as a glorious church without any stain. The Berean Study Bible says to present her to himself as a glorious church without stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. I'm going to read two more scriptures and then, you know, I'll, I'll begin to teach. But let me start from here. You know, when we see this, there are many people who actually believe that God is talking here about the sweet by and by. God is talking here about when the believer finally dies and then sees Jesus face to face. All right, then we, we, are, we are now presented to him as a glorious people not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. No, this does not happen after the believer dies. This has already happened in redemption. This is not something that is going to happen when you die and go to heaven. This has already happened now. God has already presented you to himself as without spot, as a glorious person, as without spot, as without blame, as holy and unblameable. Now, every day, God, pre God has the same disposition towards you, no matter what you do. Every day, I want to say this again. Every day, God has the same disposition towards you, irrespective of you. Now, the believer has to be sure. And the only way you will be unsure, the only way you're not going to be sure, is when you take a lot of these promises, like what we see in Ephesians 5 and verse 27, if you take it and push it into the future, into when you see, when you go to heaven, and when you see Jesus face to face, alright, you're, you're going to live in uncertainty. There is no aspect of redemption that has not happened now. Every aspect of redemption, including this one, has already happened. Jesus is already presenting you every day to himself as without fault, as without blame, as spotless. It's not something that you're going, that you're going to experience when you get to heaven. Now, one of the reasons why people are uncertain is because they keep pushing a lot of God's promises and a lot of God's blessings, and a lot of the things in God's word, they keep pushing it to the sweet by and by. They keep saying, one day, when we get to heaven, we are going to be without spots, and we are going to be without blemish, and we are going to be without wrinkle. But so long as you are still in the flesh, you always have spots, you always have wrinkle. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible is using an analogy of the way a man should see his bride as without spots, as without blemish, and as without wrinkle. That's what scripture is saying here. You will be shortchanging yourself very greatly if you think that this is only going to happen when you, when you die. No, this is not going to happen when you die. This has already happened now because redemption, do, please write this down, redemption does not need your death to be complete. Redemption needed the death of the Savior to be complete. Redemption happens to you whilst you are still alive. Not just when you die. Redemption does not need your death to be complete. So when you read scripture, 
when you read scripture, scripture is not describing what is going to happen when you die in the sweet by and by. Let's look at that scripture again. Look at that scripture again. He says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. The English Standard Version says, in splendor, without spots or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Right now before God, you are without spots, you are without wrinkle, you are without blame, you are holy, you are unblameable. It's not going to happen in the sweet by and by. It has happened in the here and now. Can we say amen to that? All right? So you are going, I'm, I'm repeating myself, I know, but I'm doing it deliberately. You're going to be shortchanging yourself if you believe that when you get to heaven, finally, Jesus is going to present you to himself as not having spots. Now listen, any righteousness that cannot present you before God as spotless today will never present you before God as spotless on the day of redemption. I want to say that again. Any righteousness that does not present you before God as, let me say it again. Let me say this again. Any righteousness that does not present you as spotless before God today will not present you as spotless before God on the day of judgment. The righteousness that would present you before God as spotless on the day of judgment must already present you on a daily basis as spotless today, tomorrow, next week, next year, next month, next life, next everything. So if your righteousness is only good for the sweet by and by, then your righteousness is not complete. The righteousness that Jesus gives, the redemption that Jesus gives, does not require your death for it to be effective because Jesus' death was enough. Let's look at another scripture. Let's look at another scripture. Colossians chapter number 1, verse 21 and 22. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Look at what it says. I'm reading from the ESV. He says this, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, see that word, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you, not on the day of judgment, because once we hear to present us, we are thinking on the day of judgment. No, to present you now, today, to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. So presenting you today as holy, as blameless, as we beyond reproach, I mentioned this last Wednesday, beyond reproach before God. It's not going to happen in the sweet by and by. It's happening now already. You are holy now. You are without blame now. You are unblameable. You are without reproach. God is presenting you to himself as this already. Now, let's look at another scripture. Ephesians chapter number 1 and verse 3. It says in the NIV, it says, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us 
who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Again, this is another scripture that somebody can read and be tempted to think he has blessed us in heavenly places, all right, in Christ. As if to say, it is when we get to heaven that we are going to receive those things because they are in heavenly places. No. First, this scripture is not talking about something intangible. The blessing here that is being described, look at it again, please. It says, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, he has already blessed us, in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, when many people read this, they think that it's in heavenly realms, and I'll only see it when I get to heaven. No. When it says heavenly realms, and when it says spiritual blessing, he's not talking about something intangible. He's only talking about a source. He's not saying that the blessing is intangible. He's only showing you the source. Showing you the source as against describing the intangibility of the blessing. Why is it important for him to show you the source? Because when you know the source, then you know that this blessing cannot be corrupted. It is not like all the things that a man wants to give to you that can be corrupted. I mean, the man can change his mind or something. He's talking about heavenly realms. He's talking about spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Speaking about the source of the blessing as against the tangibility of the blessing. He's not describing something that is intangible. He's only pointing you to the source. So since the source is in heavenly realms, then we can know that the blessing itself cannot be contaminated. Now, many people will read these things and they will say that, well, all of these blessings will be ours when we see Jesus face to face. It is when we see him face to face that we are going to be presented as holy. When we see him face to face, we are going to be presented as blameless. When we see him face to face, we are going to, pre we are going to be presented as righteous. In fact, all our heavenly blessings are only when we get to heaven that we are going to receive them. Well, let me say this to you. If God needs your death for him to complete redemption, then it means that God has partnered with the devil. You know why? Because death is actually an enemy already. You see, death is already God's enemy. So if God needs your death to complete his redemptive work, then it is out of the design of redemption. Because death, scripture calls death an enemy. So if it is only when you die that you are going to experience the fullness of all of the blessings of God, the blessings of righteousness, the blessings of Him presenting you without spots and without wrinkle. If that can only happen when you die, then it means that God has partnered with an enemy because death was never part of the plan. Death was never in the picture in the first place. Death was never God's plan for any individual. And in fact, the believer should not be looking forward to death. The believer should be looking forward to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the truth, I'm going to say this, I'll touch it on another time. 
But the truth is that the believer does not have to die before Jesus comes back again. So, we are not asked to look forward to death because death is an enemy. We are asked to look forward with joy to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, if God will wait until you die before redemption becomes perfect, then it means that God has partnered with Satan. Because Satan is the author of death, not God. So, all that God created in redemption is not for you in the sweet by and by. It's for you now. You see that blessing of being spotless is yours today. You see that blessing of being without blame. That's yours today. That's yours now. That's God's disposition towards you. That's the way he sees you now. Not when you die. Write this down. Death is an enemy. Death is not a friend of God. Okay? Death is an enemy. Death is not a friend of God. Now, if you, if you have a problem with the network, if you have a problem with the network, just restart, refresh, and come back again. I know that the enemy will not want people to hear this message. But, of course, it's being recorded. So, um... I mean, if you miss anything, make sure you get the tapes and make sure you listen to it again for yourself. Just for yourself. Alright? So, death is not a friend of God. So, God cannot partner with death for redemption to be complete. So, if you are thinking that your redemption is only complete and all of the things we've read in the first three scriptures will only be yours when you die, then what you are, you are actually really joking. Because God does not partner with death. Hallelujah. So, God is not partnering with, with death to bring you into the completeness of what he has already promised. No. Right now that you are alive, those words are not futuristic. Those words are what he's doing to you on a daily basis. He's daily presenting you to himself as without spots, as without wrinkle, as without any such thing. Can we say amen? Glory to God forevermore. Glory to God forevermore. Glory to God forevermore. Glory to God forevermore. All right. So, why are we sharing these things? The reason why we're sharing this is so that we know who we are in Christ. We also need to know how the Father looks upon us. Who are we in Christ? How does the Father look at us? It is important to know. Write this down. The redemptive work needs no help from Satan to make it complete before God. The redemptive work does not need the help of Satan for it to be complete before God. I told you, I said, death is an enemy. So every time you push these promises to when you die and go to heaven, I mean, if I were you, I would look at those scriptures again 
because I don't have time. I can't go to those scriptures anymore. But I'll look at those scriptures again. All right? And understand that it has happened to me already today, now. Not when you die. And I said, the redemptive work does not need the help of Satan to make us complete before God. If death is what brings the redemption into completeness, all right, then it means that God needs the help of Satan, all right, because death is an enemy. So it means that God needs the help of Satan for him to bring us into completeness. And that is not true. I want to go back to the scriptures that we read, Ephesians 5.27. He did this, New Living Translation, he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Right now, today, God is constantly presenting you to himself as a glorious church, not having any spot or wrinkle or blemish. Do you know this? Do you know that that's how God sees you? As not having any fault, as without spots, as without wrinkle, as without blemish. Now, today, now, today, not in the sweet by and by, right now, today. Now, I said that if we don't believe that this is happening to us now, then it means that we don't believe that the redemptive work of Jesus was complete. And if we don't believe that the redemptive work of Jesus was complete, it means that we only believe that only when we die will it be complete. And it will now mean also that God will now have partnered with Satan, all right, to bring to pass the completeness of what he has planned. And that will never happen. So, glory to God, we are already today, 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 presented before God. We are already today presented before God as having no spots and having no wrinkle. Can we say amen? All right. Now, you know, let's move on to having an understanding of, you know, the world's attempt to deal with sin consciousness. So listen, sin consciousness has always been an issue for man. Sin consciousness has always been the issue for man. Man has always had to deal with the issue of sin consciousness. And many people have tried to deal with the issue of sin consciousness in many ways. I'll give you an idea of how they've tried to deal with the issue of sin consciousness. There are some people who have tried to get rid of sin consciousness by saying that there is no God, so they deny that there is God, they deny that there is a Satan, they deny that there is sin, and if there is no sin, so first of all, they say there is no God. Then they say there is no Satan. Then they say that there is no sin. Alright? They say that there is no sin. And then they say that since there is no sin, 
then there can't be any sin consciousness. And because there is no sin consciousness, there is no judgment. This is, this is the argument. So they say there is no God, there is no Satan, there is no sin, there is no sin consciousness, and there is no judgment. But scripture tells us that there is God, there is Satan, there is sin, and there is the consciousness of sin, and there is judgment. So we do not deal with sin consciousness by denial. Write that down, please. We don't deal with sin consciousness by denial, outright denial. No. Salvation does not suggest denial. We don't deal with sin consciousness by denial. What deals with sin consciousness is that somebody has paid for sin. Glory to God. You see, that's how we deal with sin consciousness. One man paid for sin. We don't deal with sin consciousness by living in denial. No. The consciousness of sin is dealt with by realization that somebody paid for sin. This is how sin consciousness is dealt with. So, write this down. There is God... And God has dealt with sin in his son. We don't deny the existence of God. We don't deny the existence of sin. We don't deny the existence of Satan. We don't deny the existence of sin consciousness. We don't deny the existence of judgment. What we do agree is that God in Christ Jesus has dealt with sin in his son. God has dealt with sin in his son, and as a result, there is no consciousness of sin in the believer anymore. Write this down. The dominion of sin consciousness over the church, all right, has led to weakness. Sin consciousness leads to weakness. Sin consciousness leads to weakness. The dominion of sin consciousness over the church would produce weakness. If a man is conscious of sin, that man is going to be weak. But you see, the consciousness that you are unblameable that you are righteous before God, leads you to authority, leads you to reigning as a king, leads you to understanding who you are. So we are not living in denial, but we are saying somebody paid for sin and made us righteous. Can we say amen? Write this down. Righteousness is the same Righteousness is the same reign that God has over death when Jesus was raised. Alright? Righteousness, the same reign that God had over death when Jesus was raised. That is the same reign that he has given to you. The same reign 
that God has over sickness, the same reign that God has over disease, the same reign that God has over the enemy, that is the same reign that he has given to you. Now, you see, there is the aspect of trying to cure sin consciousness by denial. There is also the aspect of trying to cure sin consciousness by sorrow for sin. Write this down, please. One, being sorrowful for sin. Man's attempt to cure sin consciousness is that they try to be sorrowful about sin. They attempt to be sober about sin. They attempt to experience deep agony as a result of sin. And then they attempt sober repentance. What they call repentance is confession of sin. They attempt that as a cure for sin. And then the worst of all is that man attempts resolutions, New Year resolutions, resolutions. I will never do it again. I will never do it again. I will never do it again. They attempt to use that as a cure for sin. But you see, God's cure for sin, God's cure for sin, write this down, God's cure for sin consciousness is the gospel. God's cure for sin consciousness is the gospel. Let me show you, please. The cure of God for sin consciousness is the proclamation of the gospel. Romans chapter number one. Let's go there very quickly. Romans chapter number one. Verse 16 and 17. You see something now. You see something now. I've shown you how man tried to cure sin consciousness. And let me tell you something. All of man's attempts to cure sin consciousness only leads to further sin consciousness. There is only one cure that works for sin consciousness. And that is the proclamation of the gospel. Look at this. Romans chapter number 1 and verse 6 and verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Look at verse 17 now. Look at it. It says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Yes, we've got it. What is the cure for sin consciousness? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says, for therein, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I want to take this slowly because I want to show you something very powerful. Let's look at the same Romans 1, 16 and 17 in the King James Version. It says, I am not ashamed in the King James. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all that believe. 
for the Jews first and also for the Greek. But he doesn't stop there, my friend. Verse 17. He goes on to say, For in it, the King James says, For daring in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. I'll take it slowly. So I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. In it, what is revealed is the righteousness of God. So the righteousness of God is revealed as God's cure for sin consciousness. The righteousness of God is revealed. Now listen, the gospel is the gospel that contains the message of righteousness. It says, for daring is the righteousness of God revealed. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Let me put it like this. The gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. So, God's cure for sin is not New Year resolution. God's cure for sin consciousness is not restitution. God's cure for sin consciousness is not sober reflection. God's cure for sin consciousness is not penance. God's cure for sin consciousness is not confession to a father. God's cure for sin consciousness is righteousness. So Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And he goes on to say, therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Look, the gospel is not about um, bad becoming good. I told you last week. The gospel is not the revelation of a person's bad character so that they can change. No! The gospel is a revelation of the righteousness of God. It says, for daring, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Then he goes on to say, from faith to faith. Now, when somebody look at that, they're going to say, it means that I'm going to be growing from faith to faith, from faith to faith. No. Just like when he says, from glory to glory. No, it doesn't mean you're going to be growing from one level of glory to the other. When it says from faith to faith, it's describing something here. From the faith of the law to the faith that is in the gospel. You see, when it says from faith to faith, it means that people had to believe in the law for them to be righteous in the old covenant. They had to believe in the law and they had to keep the law for them to be righteous. So we move from the faith of the law to the faith of the gospel, wherein you have to believe in the gospel for the gospel to make you righteous. It is moving from faith in the law, faith in performance, faith in self, faith in what a person can do to get God's attention, to faith in what Jesus has done to get God's attention and how that, that has been credited to your account. It is from faith to faith, from faith in the law, faith in performance, faith in human ability, because the law represents all that a man can do with their efforts. From that kind of faith to the faith of the gospel, the faith that points to all that Jesus has done 
and has credited to your account. So we move from the fate of the law to the fate of grace. We move from the fate of the law to the fate of the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from the fate of the law that, to the fate that is in the gospel. So we m- remove our eyes from performance and we put our eyes on Jesus. We remove our eyes from our ability to keep the requirements of the law to Jesus who perfectly kept all of the requirements of redemption. Glory to God forevermore. Are you, are you hearing what I'm saying right now? From faith to faith. From faith to faith. From faith, I wish, I would to God that you never forget this. I would to God that you never forget this. So it says, Paul is saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. What is the power of God unto salvation? The gospel. What does it contain? Therein is the righteousness of God revealed. You see. So Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. For it is the, it is the power of God unto salvation. But it does not stop there. It goes on to say, therein, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So the gospel is not about leadership. The gospel is not about prosperity. The gospel is not about making it in life. The gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. Therein, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now listen, if you find that righteousness, you find you made it in life. If you find that righteousness, you find peace. If you find that righteousness, you find success. If you find that righteousness, you find all things. The gospel is about the righteousness of God. The gospel is not about the performance of a man. So, we move from faith to faith. Faith in yourself to faith in the finished work. Faith in your performance to faith in redemption. Faith in your ability to keep the law. To faith in Jesus' ability to have kept the law fully for you. Now, Paul says the gospel is the power of God. Paul does not say the gospel contains power. Paul does not say the gospel produces power. Paul does not say the gospel makes power available. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You see, so we move from trying to please God with our own performance to receiving all that Jesus has done. The gospel contains the righteousness of God. It says, therein is the righteousness of God revealed. And it goes on to say, the just shall live by faith. Meaning, the justified shall live by faith in the gospel, as against living by faith in performance. The just, 
shall live by faith in the gospel as against living by faith in self-performance. Glory to God forevermore. So, what does this mean, therefore? Righteousness is a new relationship as sons of God with all its rights and privileges. Please write that down. I said that before, but I want to say it again. If righteousness is not your performance and righteousness does not depend on you, then the question is, what is righteousness? Righteousness is a new relationship with God as a son with all its rights and privileges. That's what righteousness is. Our new relationship with God with all its rights and privileges. So when we look at our righteousness, I want to say five things that happened when you look at our righteousness. When the believer understands righteousness, five things should follow. Number one, when the believer has been made righteous, our standing is restored. Our standing is restored. Our standing is restored. We have a right standing with the Lord. Our standing is restored. Number two, our nature is restored. I talked about this on Sunday. Our nature is restored. Three, our fellowship is restored. Our fellowship is restored. Now, when fellowship is restored, please write this down. When fellowship is restored, all right, the sense of lack is removed. When fellowship is restored, the sense of lack is removed. How many of you have ever wondered why Jesus did not have any sense of lack at all? Jesus did not have a sense of lack. You and I today, we have the sense of lack. But Jesus never had the sense of lack. He never had the sense of lack of money. He never had the sense of lack of love. He never had the sense of lack of, 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 of provision. He never had the sense of lack of union with the Lord. He never had the sense of lack in any shape, way, shape, or form. So, with righteousness consciousness, I told you already that righteousness consciousness is God's cure for sin consciousness. When a man is sin conscious, he's walking in defeat. When a man is righteousness conscious, he's walking in victory. With this righteousness consciousness, you realize that your standing is restored, your nature is restored, your fellowship is restored, and because of your fellowship being restored, you have no sense of lack. All sense of lack is removed. Your faith is restored. Your faith is restored. And finally, number five, your freedom is restored. Now, let me continue. There are many people who come to their salvation experience and the redemption story. They come to it with sense knowledge. Sense knowledge faith. 
Now, sense knowledge faith depends on what we can see, hear, or feel. So, people approach their relationship with Jesus with sense knowledge faith, meaning if I cannot see it, if I cannot hear it, if I cannot feel it, I will never believe it. It's like Thomas. So, until I see it, I will not believe. Until I hear it, I will not believe. Until I feel it, I will not believe. So, sense knowledge faith is governed by what we can see, what we can feel, you know, by all our five senses. So, that's the reason why if a person does not feel righteous, they believe that they have lost their righteousness. You know, there are many people who actually say that when um, a believer does something wrong, their relationship is intact, but their fellowship is broken. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to know what it means for fellowship to be broken. It was fellowship that was broken when Jesus was imputed with our sins on the cross. And at the time that that fellowship with the Father was broken, Jesus was under severe judgment because he was imputed with our sins. So if you have a sense that fellowship is broken because you've done something wrong, then what you are saying is that you have brought yourself under severe judgment. And the question I want to ask you is, unto what purpose? For what purpose? Why do you want to bring yourself under severe judgment when Jesus has been judged? The very judgment that you were supposed to receive has fallen on Jesus. Why do you want to bring yourself under judgment anymore? If you believe that your fellowship is broken, even for one second, then what you are indirectly saying is that you have come under judgment. And God will not judge Jesus and judge you again. Can we say amen? I'm going somewhere. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm going somewhere with this. So I've told you the five things that happen when we, became, when we become righteousness conscious. And I want to show you another thing now. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 and verse 21. This is where I'm going to close today. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. Let's read it together. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be offering for our sin, so that we could be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I want to read it from the King James. For he had made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. Write this down, please, and I'll ask you this question. The ministry of Jesus, Jesus' assignment included these things. Please write them down. Number one, incarnation. Please write it down. The incarnation of Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus simply means the birth of Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus. All right? Number two, the public ministry of Jesus. Number three, the cross. On the cross was where Jesus was made sin for us. 
I know I have a lot to say to you today, but just, just take it. Number one, incarnation. Number two, the public ministry of Jesus. Number three, the cross. It was on the cross that Jesus was made sin for us. Number four, the judgment. Alright? Number four, the judgment. Then number five, when he regained, or when he regained life. When he was raised back to life. Let me take that again. Incarnation, the public ministry of Jesus on the cross where he became, where he was made sin. Then he was judged. Then he was raised back to life. Now let me ask you a question. I want to throw a question to every one of us. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 21 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now let me ask you, was Jesus made to be a sinner on the cross? If you believe that Jesus was made to be a sinner on the cross, just say yes. Was Jesus made to be a sinner on the cross? Was Jesus made to be a sinner on the cross? Was he made a sinner on the cross? Okay, I see that. No, I want, I want you to answer. Just say yes or no. Jesus was made, Jesus was not made a sinner or yes, Jesus was made a sinner on the cross. I'm taking you somewhere. I'm taking you somewhere with this. Go ahead, go ahead. Was Jesus made a sinner on the cross? I want to answer a very powerful question right now. If you believe Jesus was made a sinner on the cross, just say, yes, sir, I believe Jesus was made a sinner on the cross. Anyway, while I'm waiting for your response, okay, no, awesome, no, great, awesome. So, on the cross, alright, Jesus was not made a sinner on the cross. Okay? Jesus died in our place. He was not made a sinner. He was treated as if he was a sinner. He was not made a sinner. He took our place. Okay, so somebody says, I believe that he was made to be sin according to scripture. So when you look at the word made to be sin, it was, it's talking about imputed sin. It's not talking about sin as origin. It's talking about sin as imputed. Please write that down. Imputed sin. So there are two things that I'm going to explain to you now. One is imputed sin. The other is infused righteousness. So Jesus was not made a sinner on the cross. And the reason why is this. 
if Jesus was made a sinner on the cross, he would not have been accepted by God. Because there must have been a reason why God did not allow Joseph to impregnate Mary. It was to protect the seed. So that the seed did not come, the sperm did not come from sinful fallen man. The sperm came from the Holy Ghost, for lack of a better word. Amen. That seed came from the Holy Ghost. And what we are told in medicine or in science is that the woman does not contribute anything to um, making the baby. The woman is a receiver of the sperm. The woman does not contribute. If I am wrong, please let me know. She only receives the sperm. And um, I, I don't know if there is even a connection of blood to the baby. So the, the woman only receives the sperm and fertilizes it. But she has no contribution whatsoever. There must have been a reason why God ensured that Jesus did not come into the world through the sperm of a man. It was to protect his sinlessness. We also know that Jesus went to the, through the earth, and the Bible says on several places that Jesus had no sin. So the question is, how was Jesus made sin? What I'm sharing with you now is very powerful. It's very powerful because I'm arriving at something in this. How was Jesus made sin on the cross? It was imputed to him. That is to say, he was made sin on our behalf. He was made sin on our behalf. In other words, he did not know sin himself. He was treated as if he sinned. Why? Let's look at Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. It says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring and will prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. So on the cross, Jesus was the righteous one being treated as if he was a sinner. Look at Luke, Luke 23 and verse 47. It says, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this, this man was innocent. Even the centurion says, This man was innocent. He had no sin. He was strict. Listen, if Jesus had sin as per he was made an outright sinner on the cross, he will not be accepted before God. You know why? The requirement of the, of the old covenant of the lamb was that the lamb would be without spot and without any blemish for it to be accepted by God. So if Jesus was made a sinner, if he was made a sinner for real, 
then it means that he had become spotted. And it means that he had become wrinkled. So, the way to understand that word, made sin, is to look at it in the Greek. And that word made sin is imputed sin. That is, he is to be treated as if he sinned. Now, this is what makes redemption very powerful. How many of you have ever felt very deeply pained and sorrowful when somebody said that you did something that you did not do? How many of you have ever felt very, very terrible when somebody said that you did something that you did not do? So you know what? On the cross, Jesus knew no sin. He was not made a sinner on the cross. Rather, he was with his righteous self being treated as though he was a sinner. It's more powerful, my friend. It is more powerful, my friend. Jesus on the cross was still righteous. I have scriptures to prove it to you. I'll probably do that on Sunday. Jesus on the cross was still righteous. When it says that he was made sin, it was that Jesus was treated like he was a sinner. And guess what? Oh, let me show you. Let me show you. Romans 5.19. It says, For through the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. What does this mean? The death of Jesus on the cross was an act of obedience. Such that his righteousness is imputed to those who believe. Now, Jesus could not be a sinner if he was still on the cross being in obedience to the Father. On the cross, he was obedient. Do you realize that? That whilst Jesus was on the cross, he was still being obedient to the Father. Let's look at Philippians 2 and verse 8. Look at what it says. It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Look at Hebrews 4 and verse 15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was absolutely without sin, even on the cross. That's what makes his death even more painful. You know why? Because he was being punished for something he did not do. He was being punished as if he stole, as if he lied, as if he did something wrong. Look at me. Jesus' righteousness was intact in, in even while he was on the cross. Jesus was absolutely righteous even while he was on the cross. I, I say that, let me show you one, one more scripture because this will help the narrative. Alright, this will help the narrative. In Leviticus 22 and verse 20, I want you to look at that. Leviticus 22 and verse 20. Let me, let me nail this on the head. Leviticus 22 and verse 20. Here's what he says. He says, whatever. Okay, you get it now. You get it now. Okay, you're getting it now. 
Okay. Leviticus 22 and verse 20. It says, whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. Meaning that if it has a defect, it is not worthy to be offered up as a sacrifice. So if Jesus had sinned, then he becomes unworthy to be offered as a sacrifice. So what then happened on the cross? He was made sin in, this, in the sense that sin was imputed to him. Not that he did any sin, but he was imputed with sin. That is, he was treated as though he's the one who sinned. Now, let me say this. Many of you will never want to be punished as though you lied, even though you did not lie. We know how painful it is for somebody to punish us as though we lied. So if Jesus was, a, was made a sinner on the cross, God will not even accept his sacrifice. It will be unacceptable because now he has become spotted and blemished. So what this means is that Jesus was 100% righteous when he was on the cross. And what this also means is that Jesus was treated as if he sinned. So sin was imputed to him. Now it also means that Jesus as the righteous was what went to the grave. And was what went, he was the one as the righteous that went to hell. No wonder, no wonder Satan could not hold him down. <laughs> if Jesus had gone to hell as a sinner, sinner, Satan would have held him down. The reason why Satan could not hold Jesus down was because he went to hell as the righteous. Who was being punished as if he was a sinner. Now, I understand your question now. Because a lot of you are going to be asking. A lot of you are going to be asking. Now, a lot of you. So, Jesus went to hell. That's the reason why hell could not hold him down. That's the reason why it was because he was punished as if he sinned. Imputed sin. Jesus was not actually a sinner. He was imputed sin. So, Jesus was not born with sin, and Jesus did not commit any sin. He was made sin by imputation. He was made sin by being treated as if he is the one that sinned. That's why when he died, Satan could not hold him down. The enemy could not hold him, because as the righteousness of God, it was righteousness that powered resurrection. It was the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Jesus that powered resurrection. It was the fact that Jesus was, was, never lost his righteousness that made resurrection possible. And that's the reason why when a man understands the power of righteousness, they become unstoppable. Nothing can hold them down. Nothing can hold them down. Nothing can hold them down. Not even the grave can hold the righteous man down. Not even the grave can hold the righteous man down. Don't you understand? Now, I know some of you will now be asking that, okay, is it that we were, we were also imputed as righteousness? Is it that we are not actually righteous? 
but we are treated as if we are righteous. No. Jesus was made sin, imputed sin, so that we can be infused with righteousness. You see, it, we were not imputed righteousness. We are infused with righteousness. That is, we are born with righteousness. That is, we are injected with righteousness. There is imputation, that's Jesus. There is infusion, that's us. We are born righteousness. We are born with the nature of righteousness, glory to God. We are born with the nature of righteousness, glory to God. We are infused with righteousness. We are infused with righteousness, glory to God. We are born with the nature of righteousness. Jesus imputed sin. We infused righteousness. Woo, glory, hallelujah. So how was Jesus made sin on the cross? He was treated as though he sinned. So that you and I can be infused with the righteousness of God. This righteousness cannot be stopped. So guess what? Jesus was 100% righteous on the cross. Now I see it. Now I see it. Now it makes more sense. The agony that Jesus went through. No, he didn't go through it for something he did wrong. He was being punished as though he was a sinner. No wonder. You see, you and I, if we were going to be punished for something we did not do, we are going to run away. We are going to say, no, 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 I will not take it. I cannot be punished for something that I did not do. No, 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 I'm not going to take it. But you see, what makes Jesus so powerful is that as righteous, he was being flogged like he was a sinner. The punishment he took was as if he was a sinner. That's what makes him more powerful. That's what makes his obedience even more powerful. I don't know if you're being blessed by this. That's what makes Jesus' obedience even more powerful. The fact that he never lost his righteous standing before the Father. Yet, he allowed himself to be spat on, to be wounded, to be bruised as if he was a sinner. So that you and I can be infused with righteousness. When he says, made the righteousness of God in Christ, he's talking about the infusion of righteousness. The imputation of sin on Jesus. The infusion of righteousness into you. You are born of righteous blood. You are born of redemption. So now, the believer is not meant to live their lives with sin consciousness. The believer is meant to live their lives with righteousness consciousness. Why? Because Jesus was treated as if he sinned. So that you can be infused with righteousness. This righteousness will save you from pity party. This righteousness consciousness will save you from feeling sorry for yourself. This righteousness will save you from feeling frustrated. This righteousness will restore joy to your life. This righteousness consciousness will bring you a sense of no lack, a sense of no want, a sense of no regrets, a sense of no sorrow. Glory to God. Guess what? Jesus was raised from the dead by the power and the dominion of righteousness. You know why? He never lost it. Jesus was raised from the dead 
by the power and dominion of righteousness. Why? He never lost it. He never lost his righteousness. Glory to God. So with righteousness, consciousness, my friend, you're in charge. You reign. Look at how Jesus reigned over death. Look at how Jesus reigned over the storms. Look at how Jesus reigned over the seas. Look at how Jesus reigned over, you know, all things. If you think about it, you know, your response is going to be, wow, 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 wow. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Wow. Jesus was made sin. He was imputed with sin. He was imputed. He was sinless. I just showed you. If Jesus was ever reckoned to be sinful, God would have never accepted him. And he would have never been raised from the dead. But thanks be to God, Jesus retained his righteousness even on the cross. He was treated as though he was a sinner. What a, what a terrible place to be so that you can be infused with righteousness. Glory to God, I've been infused with righteousness. Oh, I've been infused with righteousness. I've been born again with righteous blood. So when does God see you as blameless? Not in the sweet by and by. He sees you as blameless now, today, right now. Glory to God. This is something to shout about. This is something to shout about. So trade your sin consciousness with righteousness consciousness. Trade your sin consciousness with I'm reigning in life. I'm reigning in life. I'm reigning in life. I'm reigning in life. You can be sure. What God thinks about you today. You can be sure how God sees you today. You can be sure of God's disposition towards you today. Why? Because he made him who knew no sin to be made sin. So that you and I can be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you for engaging with us in this episode. We trust that your life has been beautified. If you'd like to share what Jesus is doing in your life through this ministry, please write to us at hello.blueprintstories.org. You can visit our website at www.blueprintstories.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at The Blueprints Church and on Instagram at The Blueprints Church. Cheers.